This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 26th, 2014. Episode 5, Concerning the Burning of Crowland Abbey. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. We have a monster text today, uh, so I don't want to spend too much time in introductory blather, uh, but I do want to wish everyone a merry day after Christmas, um, if you're downloading this uh, on its release day. I hope your leftovers are still tasting good. I'm very excited about today's text. It's one I've been looking forward to doing for a long time, since the earliest days that I began planning this podcast. It's a rather long passage, uh, but I don't want to break it up, so I'm going to let it be our holiday special. Uh, There's nothing directly Christmassy about it, Uh, well, unless you've ever had a Christmas tree catch fire in your house. Today, we're going to hear about the Great Crowland Abbey Fire of 1091, as recorded in an account written less than five years later by the man who was abbot at the time, Ingolf. Well, Maybe. That's what the text tells us, at least. Uh, But as I'll discuss after the story, there are some issues with this. On the subject of Crowland Abbey, uh, students of Old English might remember Crowland uh, as the house founded in the early 700s by the followers of St. Guthlock, uh, for whom we have a couple of celebrated Old English hagiographical poems. But let's start out by taking this story at face value. Uh, I thought I'd provide a few quick definitions of some potentially unfamiliar terms that will pop up here. First, a corody is a thing kind of like a pension. Uh, It's an allowance, usually of food and lodging at a monastery, uh, that's granted to an individual. Sometimes these are bestowed as a kind of favor to a servant of the abbey or to someone connected with the king or local lord or someone else that you owe favors to. Uh, Sometimes they might be given in exchange for a donation to the abbey. So if someone promises all their property to the abbey at their death, uh, the abbey might give them a corody to support them in their old age. Uh, And sometimes they were given as an act of charity or a kind of memorial endowment. So when an important monk or abbot died, they might bequeath a corody to some poor person. We'll also be hearing about muniments being stored in presses. Uh, So, muniments are legal documents, charters, privileges, things like that. Um, Texts which might well be kept separately from the ordinary books and documents of the monastery library. And presses here just refers to a kind of bookcase or cabinet uh, for gathered parchment leaves. Um, These aren't bookmaking presses. We'll also hear a slightly unusual use of the word nadir, uh, as in the opposite of zenith. Uh, But in this case, it refers to um, a kind of astronomical chart or a device, uh, maybe something like an astrolabe. Now to the text. The English translation I'll be reading from is that by Henry T. Riley from his volume Ingolf's Chronicle of the Abbey of Crowland. My text comes specifically from a 1908 reprint of the 1854 edition, and both of these are available through Google Books. Ingolf's Chronicle of the Abbey of Crowland, 
After an interval of two years had elapsed from Archbishop Lanfranc's death, a most dreadful misfortune befell me, one that had been shown to me beforehand by numerous portents, the utter destruction, I mean, of our monastery, so famous as it was, which had been often most distinctly foretold to me by visions and other appearances through a most dreadful conflagration which most cruelly ravaged so many dwellings of the servants of God. For, our plumber being engaged in the tower of the church, repairing the roof, he neglected to put out his fire in the evening, but by a kind of fatality, attended with extreme fatuity on his part, covered it over with dead ashes that he might get more early to work in the morning, and then came down to his supper. After supper was over, all our servants had betaken themselves to bed, when after the deepest sleep had taken possession of them all, a most violent north wind arose, and so hastened on this greatest of misfortunes that could possibly befall us. For, as it entered the tower in every direction through the open gratings, and blew upon the dead ashes, it caused the fire, thus fanned into life, to communicate with the adjoining timbers, where, speedily finding material of a dry and parched nature on which to feed, the fire waxed stronger and stronger, and soon began to catch the more substantial parts. The people in the ville for a long time perceived a great glare of light in the belfry, and supposed that it was either the clerks of the church or the plumber busily engaged at some work there. But at last, on seeing the flames bursting forth, with loud outcries they knocked at the gates of the monastery. This was about the dead of night, when all of us, resting in our beds, were in our first and soundest sleep. At last, I was aroused from my slumbers by the loud shouts of the people, and hastening to the nearest window, I most distinctly perceived, just as though it had been midday, all the servants of the monastery running from every quarter, shouting and hallooing towards the church. Still in my nightclothes, I awoke my companions and descended in all haste to the cloisters, which were lighted up on all sides, just as though there had been a thousand lamps burning. On running to the door of the church and trying to effect an entrance, I was prevented from doing so by the melted brass of the bells which was pouring down, and the heated lead which in like manner was falling in drops. Upon this I retreated and looked in at the windows, and on finding the flames everywhere prevailing turned my steps towards the dormitory. The lead still pouring down from the church upon the cloisters, and soon making its way through, I was severely burnt on the shoulder blade, and should have had a narrow escape of being burnt alive had I not instantly leaped over into the enclosure of the cloisters. Here I perceived that the fire, as it vomited forth sheets of flame, was issuing in volumes from the tower of the church, and had already communicated with the nave, while it was repeatedly shooting forth embers and flakes in the direction of the dormitory of the brethren, upon which I shouted aloud to them as if they had been immersed in a mortal lethargy, and it was only with the greatest difficulty, though I cried out at the very top of my voice, that I was able at last to awaken them. On recognizing my voice, full of alarm, they sprang up from their beds, and half-naked and clad only in their nightclothes, they instantly heard the fire in the cloisters, rushed forth through all the windows of the dormitory, and fell to the ground with dreadful force. Many were wounded and severely shaken by the severity of the fall, and, shocking to relate, some had their limbs broken. The flames, however, in the meanwhile growing stronger and stronger, and continually sending forth flakes from the church in the direction of the refectory, first communicated with the chapter house, then they caught the dormitory, and after that the refectory, and at the same instant the ambulatory which was near the infirmary. 
After this, with a sudden outburst, they extended their ravages to the whole of the infirmary, with all of the adjoining offices. All the brethren flying for refuge to the spot where I stood in the court, on seeing most of them half-naked, I attempted to regain my chamber in order to distribute the clothes which I had there, among such as I saw stand in the greatest need thereof. But so great was the heat that had taken possession of all the approaches to the hall, and so vast were the torrents of molten lead that were pouring down in every direction, that it rendered it impossible for even the boldest among the young men to effect an entrance. Being still in ignorance that our infirmary had caught on the other side, I took a circuit through the northern part of the cemetery toward the east end of the church, upon which I perceived our infirmary enveloped in flames, which proved so invincible as to rage with the greatest fury even upon the green trees, such as ashes, oaks, and willows, that were growing in the neighborhood. I accordingly returned to the west side, and there I found my chamber just like a furnace vomiting forth torrents of flame on every side through all the windows and proceeding onwards, I saw, with eyes that had good reason to shed tears, all the other buildings adjoining towards the south the halls, namely of the lay brethren and of the guests, and all the others that had been covered with lead, falling a prey to the flames. At this moment, the tower of the church falling on its south side, I was so stunned by the crash that I fell to the ground half dead and in a swoon. Being raised by my brethren and carried to our porter's room, I was barely able until morning to recover my right senses or my usual strength. Day dawned at last, and having now recovered from my fit, the brethren shedding tears and overcome with languor, and many of them being miserably lacerated and burnt in their limbs, with mournful voice and tearful lamentations we joined in the performance of divine service in the dwelling of Grimkettle, our corroderie. Having performed all of the hours of the divine service, both those of the day as well as of the night, we proceeded to take a view of the state of our monastery, the fire still raging in many of the outbuildings. It was then, for the first time, that I perceived our granary and stable burnt, the fire not being yet extinguished, and the upright timbers being eaten away by the flames deep into the very earth. About the third hour of the day, the flames being now greatly subdued, we effected an entry into the church, and water being carried thither extinguished the fire there, which had now pretty well burned out. In the choir, which was reduced to ashes, we found all the books of the Holy Office utterly destroyed, both antiphonaries as well as graduals. On entering the vestiary, however, we found all our sacred vestments and the relics of the saints, as well as some other precious things deposited there, untouched by the flames, the place being covered with a double roof of stone. Going upstairs into our muniment room, we found that, although it had been covered throughout with an arching of stone, the fire had still made its way through the wooden windows, and that, although the presses themselves appeared to be quite safe and sound, Still, all our muniments therein were burnt into one mass, and utterly destroyed by the intense heat of the fire, just as though they had been in a furnace red-hot, or an oven at a white heat. Our charters, of extreme beauty, written in capital letters, adorned with golden crosses and paintings of the greatest beauty, and formed of materials of matchless value, which had been there deposited, were all destroyed. The privileges, also, granted by the kings of the Mercians, 
documents of extreme antiquity and of the greatest value, which were likewise most exquisitely adorned with pictures in gold, but written in Saxon characters, were all burnt. The whole of these monuments of ours, both great and small, nearly four hundred in number, were in one moment of a night which proved to us of blackest hue, by a most shocking misfortune, lost and utterly destroyed. A few years before, however, I had of my own accord taken from our muniment room several charters written in Saxon characters, and, as we had duplicates of them, and in some cases triplicates, I had put them in the hands of our chanter, the Lord Fulmer, to be kept in the cloisters in order to instruct the juniors in a knowledge of the Saxon characters, as this kind of writing had for a long time, on account of the Normans, been utterly neglected, and was now understood by only a few of the more aged men. In so doing, my object was that the juniors, being instructed in the art of reading these characters, might, in their old age, be better enabled to support themselves on the authority of their archives against their adversaries. These charters having been deposited in an ancient press, which was kept in the cloisters and surrounded on every side by the wall of the church, were the only ones that were saved and preserved from the fire. These now form our principal and especial muniments, after having been long considered as of secondary value and thrown aside and neglected and despised, in consequence of the barbarous characters in which they were written, in accordance with the words of the blessed Job, the things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. The whole of our library also perished, which contained more than three hundred volumes of original works, besides smaller volumes more than four hundred in number. We also lost at the same time an astronomical table of extreme beauty and costliness, wonderfully formed of all kinds of metals according to the various natures of the stars and constellations. Saturn was made of copper, Jupiter of gold, Mars of iron, the sun of Latin, Mercury of bronze, Venus of tin, and the moon of silver. The colors and all the signs of the zodiac were described by the skill of the artist in various forms and figures in accordance with their natures, shapes, and colors, and attracted beyond measure the eye as well as the mind of the beholder by the multitude of gems as well as the metals employed. Throughout all England there was not such another nadir known or heard of. The king of France had formerly presented it to Turkettle, who, at his decease, had left it to the library of the convent, both as an ornament and for the instruction of the younger brethren, and now it was consumed by the voracious flames, and so annihilated. The whole of our chapter house was burnt. Our dormitory, with all the beds of the brethren contained therein, and the necessary house as well, perished in the flames. Our infirmary, together with the chapel and the bathroom, and all the offices thereto adjoining, was similarly consumed. Our refectory and all the contents thereof were destroyed, with the exception of a few cups of porcelain and the horn and crucibolum of Wickloff, the former king of the Mercians, which were kept in presses of stone. The kitchens also adjoining, and the hall and the chamber of the lay brethren, with all the contents thereof, were consumed by the fire. Our cellar also, as well as the very casks filled with beer, were destroyed. The abbot's hall, too, and his chamber, together with the entire courtyard of the monastery, which, through the care of my predecessors, had been most beauteously surrounded with buildings remarkable for their elegance. Alas, unhappy me, that my sojourn was prolonged to behold it, 
most shockingly fell a prey to the fury of the flames, which raged in every direction with a vehemence that seemed to be truly Greek. A few cottages of the poor carotiers, the stalls of our beasts of burden, with the sheds for the other cattle that stood at a considerable distance and were covered with stone, were the only things that remained unconsumed. Besides the northern transept of the church, from which the wind drove onwards with most impetuous force towards the south, all the buildings of the monastery, and especially those covered with lead, whether formed of wood or of stone, are charters and jewels, books and utensils, bells and belfries, vestments and provisions, were in a moment of time lost and consumed, myself to my most bitter sorrow being then the head of the convent. Many signs and numerous portents foretold these fires, and nightly visions repeatedly forewarned us thereof, and too late did I understand them all. I then brought to mind the words of our Holy Father, Turkettle, in his dying moments, when he benignly warned us diligently to take care of our fires, as also those of our blessed Father Wolfram, who in a nightly vision at Fontenelle commanded me carefully to watch the fire of the hostry of the three saints, Guthlock, Neot, and Waldev. What these most unerring admonitions forewarned me, I now too late to my sorrow perceive and understand, and indulge in vain complaints, while with tears inexhaustible I deservedly pour forth these lamentations, my errors demanding of me the same. All right. I think that's a fantastic story. It's a remarkably vivid and personal account of a disaster that was a major trauma for a community. It's an amazing piece of eyewitness history. Or is it? Here's the thing. Ingalls Chronicle? Well, it's generally considered to be a forgery from hundreds of years later. Um, though even that isn't exactly a straightforward claim. Let's start with the simple details uh, about the larger text from which today's story comes. The common name for this chronicle is the Historia Crolandensis, which starts out with Abbot Ingolf's History of the Abbey, which covers the time of St. Guthlock in the 8th century up to Ingolf's own abbacy, uh, stopping around the year 1095. Um, which is allegedly when he is writing this history. The history is then continued in a series of editions written by uh, a combination of named and unnamed writers that carry the history all the way into the 15th century. No manuscripts of the Historia Crolandensis survive, which are older than the 1500s. Uh, though there are references made by Renaissance scholars to the existence of supposedly older but now lost manuscripts. So all we have to go on are relatively late copies of copies. Now, that in and of itself is not an uncommon situation for medieval texts, but it does mean that the original date of the text composition suddenly relies on the evidence of the content of the text. Uh, now, for a long time, since it first came to scholarly attention in the 16th and 17th centuries, the Historia Crolandensis 
was accepted as a true and valuable chronicle. But by the beginning of the 19th century, historians had begun to raise serious questions about it, uh, so that by 1826, Sir Francis Palgrave is content to declare that, quote, the history of Ingolf must be considered to be little better than an historical novel, a mere monkish invention. Uh, and in this case, Palgrave would be referring to 14th or 15th century monks uh, inventing this history over 300 years after the time it claims to be written. At least, that's one extreme of the positions that scholars have taken on the authenticity of the part of the chronicle ascribed to Ingolf, um, or, as many of these scholars would have it, the pseudo-Ingolf. The basic theory here is summed up by our translator, Riley. Around the year 1415, the abbey was in conflict with the residents of a couple of the neighboring villages, who began encroaching on the lands and fisheries claimed by the abbey. In order to win a clear legal victory and secure their property rights, the monks apparently forged ancient charters for the abbey. Riley says, quote, Finding among their archives a chronicle of the convent from the earliest times, said to have been composed by the Simpex by the order of Abbot Turkettle, the monks made it the vehicle of their fictitious charters, adding to it, the histories which had been written by Elderick and Ingolf had the whole copied afresh and deposited the manuscript in the sacristy as corroborative proof of their title to their lands. It was for this reason, perhaps, that so few copies of the manuscript were allowed to circulate, as the forgers must have been conscious that to the scrutinizing view of the scholar, the anachronisms and contradictions with which the charters were filled would be too evident. Now, we might spot one loophole here, through which we could pull our story of the fire from its consignment to the ranks of forgeries and duplicitous fiction. Uh, not that it wouldn't still be fascinating as a forgery, um, but I think it definitely alters our response to this tale, uh, if we assume that it is. What's accepted beyond pretty much all scholarly doubt is that the charters that are interspersed throughout Ingolf's text and incorporated into the text, uh, not just pasted in, as it were, but fitted into the narrative and introduced in Ingolf's voice. Um, these charters are certainly phony, invented centuries after the year 1095. But, as Riley says, perhaps the nature of the forgery here is that your 15th century Crowland monks took an existing authentic chronicle written by Ingolf in the 11th century and edited it in order to weave in fictional charters. And it has to be said that a great deal of the scholarship out there about whether or not this text is a forgery is 75 to 90% focused on charters and the signatories and the documented possessions of the abbey. Uh, the debate is largely about the property uh, and not really so much about the narrative. Anyway, in this view of the text, we could certainly still accept Ingolf's account of the fire uh, as a bit of 11th century memoir. Um, and we do know that the abbey was consumed by fire in 1091, because this is attested by at least one other independent source, uh, so the factuality of that event uh, is not itself disputed. But there are other problems with Ingolf's text that do encroach on areas not directly adjacent to the charters. There are other anachronisms, 
the writer borrows phrases from famous historians of the 12th century. Uh, there's an extensive study of the sources and anachronisms of the Historia Crolandensis by uh, W.G. Searle and published in 1894. And while Searle actually defends the Chronicle against a number of the charges of anachronism or error that have been uh, launched at it, he nonetheless ultimately concludes, along with the skeptics, that the t- present text of the Ingulf uh, was probably compiled around the year 1450, and that at best, uh, perhaps an original Ingulf-authored text had been heavily reworked by someone about a hundred years later um, than its supposed origin date of 1095. And even if we hold on to the idea that the fire episode is a survival from an original account written by the abbot himself that's remained embedded in a larger assemblage of fabrications, we still have to face the fact that the ultimate purpose of this account of the fire is to explain why a bunch of original charters were destroyed and a certain special few survived, which does sound an awful lot like the kind of narrative suspiciously convenient for a forger's agenda. But here's my response. If this story is, as Paul Grave puts it, a historical novel, it's a kind of unbelievable example of literary craftsmanship that's perhaps not totally unprecedented, but would still be pretty striking in a period where even authentic memoir is frequently rather stiff and lacking in any strong conception of scene, detail, or point of view. To see someone so expertly embody the first-person perspective of essentially a fictional narrator is a rather remarkable feat in an age before the novel. And I have one observation of my own to add, Um, and actually I'd wanted to try to write a paper or an article on this, but... And it turns out the substance of my claim is a bit thin for that, Um, but it might be just about perfect for a podcast. There's a concept in cognitive science that's filtered over into literary studies called theory of mind, which really is just a way to describe how we are able with our own cognitive apparatus to imagine and simulate the mental states and thoughts of others. It's how I know what you're thinking. Uh, Notably, theory of mind, like object permanence, is one of those cognitive milestones that you can observe children acquiring. Um, There's one experiment to demonstrate this, uh, where you have two researchers and a child sitting at a table and playing with a toy. One of the researchers takes the toy and puts it inside a box. Then the researcher gets up and leaves. While he's away, the other researcher takes the toy out of the box and hides it under the table. Then the first researcher comes back. And the child is asked, where will Bob, uh, let's say the researcher who's left is called Bob, where will Bob look for the toy? A young child who hasn't quite attained theory of mind will point to under the table, because the child doesn't realize that Bob's knowledge about the toy differs from the child's knowledge about the toy. An older child can simulate Bob's thought process and will understand that Bob will still think the toy is in the box, even though the child knows that the toy is under the table. And obviously, as one develops even further, our capacity for theory of mind reaches greater levels of complexity. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. 
All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Now, you don't really need theory of mind to understand how point of view works in narrative, but I think it does help a bit, and there is a certain sense that the omniscient point of view that is common to pre-modern fictional narrative is a little bit like a child with an underdeveloped theory of mind. People can write in perfectly ordinary first-person that maintains great verisimilitude when they're recounting their own experience. But once they start describing an imagined world, the tendency, and the rhetorical convention, is to jump into that all-knowing perspective. You're the author, you do know everything, and what every character is thinking, so it might seem kind of bizarre to you to limit yourself and deliberately withhold or deny that knowledge, and... Uh, to model the limited perceptions of a single character. Uh, I certainly won't say it never happens, um, but there is some justification for why the modernists patted themselves on the back with such self-satisfaction for mastering the limited point of view. Anyway, here's what I noticed about the fire story. We really stay in Ingolf's point of view to a striking degree. There's a very natural place in the narrative where we might expect a chronicler who's just inventing an account of an abbey fire, and there are many such accounts in monastic chronicles to draw from. Um, We might expect that chronicler to expand out into a larger perspective and paint the bigger picture like most historians who might be composing third-person accounts would do. Uh, This moment is when the dormitory catches fire. And part of the reason my point is not entirely conclusive here uh, is because, at least in strict modernist terms, uh, we do break the first-person point of view, uh, but only a little bit. Our narrator says that he sees the fire spread to the dormitory, and he begins shouting to awaken the monks within. Here the point of view does briefly slip inside the building and into the heads of the other monks. Quote, On recognizing my voice, full of alarm, they sprang up from their beds, and half-naked and clad only in their nightshirts, the instant they heard the fire in the cloisters, rushed forth through all the windows of the dormitory and fell to the ground with dreadful force. And then he describes the injuries they suffer. We're barely inside that dormitory. We barely see the flames within the building. Instead, the primary image is of the monks plunging out the windows and falling to the ground, breaking their limbs and getting horribly injured. In other words, what we really see in this passage is what someone standing outside the dormitory and shouting up at the windows would have witnessed, would probably have had nightmares about. And shortly after that, Ingolf swoons into unconsciousness with the collapse of the tower, and we resume the narrative with what he learns when he comes back to his senses. Point of view is honored in a way that I, at least, find rather unexpected. Is that evidence that 
this passage isn't a forgery? I don't know. Uh, it's also certainly possible that the pseudo-Ingulf is also writing from personal experience of a church or monastery fire. They weren't exactly rare occurrences. Uh, and maybe that's the source of the authentic qualities of the point of view, um, if not necessarily the historical realities of the, of the scene. And maybe I'm just horribly underrating the ability of a late medieval writer to recognize and implement the first-person point of view in a fictional scene. Um, if any of you have thoughts about any of this, uh, I'd love to hear them. Um, I certainly could keep going for half an hour on this topic, uh, but mercifully I won't. Uh, thank you, though, for bearing with me um, if you lasted this long. Now let's wrap things up. First, the answer to last episode's riddle. Our riddle was, what is it that freezeth never? Uh, this riddle also comes from the Demons Joyeuse, as our previous riddle did. And the answer this time is, what freezeth never? Hot water. Boo, right? That's a riddle suitable for Christmas crackers. Now, normally I'd be back with a new episode in two weeks, uh, but with the holidays and with preparations for the start of the new semester, uh, I think the podcast is going to take a New Year's break, and we'll be back instead in the second half of January with a brand new text. Well, a brand new episode, a very old text. Uh, we'll also start with a fresh riddle to kick off 2015 then. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or you can check out the website at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Uh, and we now have an email address if you have feedback or questions that are too long for Twitter, um, or if you just don't like using Twitter or posting public comments. Um, the email address is patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, thanks for listening, and have a happy new year. <laughs> <laughs>